morning. Get my, get my mic on here. I think we're good. Um, just a couple quick announcements. Um, we are beginning our next steps track this month. Um, and so the first Sunday of every month, we have a class called Making the Table Home. That class Sabbath during the month of May. Um, so if this, uh, if this is your first Sunday or maybe you came sometime during the month of May and you want to learn more about the Table Church, trying to decide whether you want to hang out with us a little longer, um, we have a class called Making the Table Home, immediately following service. You just go down there, uh, the hall there, it's in the conference room. Uh, it lasts about 30 to 45 minutes. Um, some of you may be wondering if this is your first Sunday or whether, if you haven't heard us on the podcast before, do I always sound this sexy? Um, I do not. Um, this is allergies are, are taking a toll on me. And it may be a little worse in this service, so we'll, if you'll pray for me, we'll make it through. The other announcement is um, All In Night is this Wednesday, June 6, 6.30 at our downtown parish. It's an incredible time where all of our different... Um, teams and leaders come together for a time of prayer and a time of worship. Um, so it's just a great way to meet people from the other services. So uh, six, uh, June 6, 6.30 p.m., you can RSVP at thetablechurch.org forward slash all in. And then this week, we're so stoked because our summer community groups are starting. Um, and we, I know it sounds cliche, but we really believe that life is better together. You need somebody in your life who has permission to ask you difficult questions. You need someone in your life that can celebrate the win when you get that new job and you just need to tell somebody. But you also need someone in your life that you can cry with during those moments when life is not going as you expected. And our, and our hope and our desire is that the community groups at the table become that community for you. Um, so you, if you are not yet in a group, you can find a group by going to thetablechurch.org forward slash groups. Um, or as you leave, there are these cool little cards um, that have that information on it. Uh, and so you, there's, a, there's a database on there and you can find groups all over the city. So I just encourage you to do that. Um, we are beginning a brand new series today um, centered around the life of King David. Now, many of you, whether you grew up in the church or not, you probably know a little bit about King David. Maybe you heard the story of David and Goliath. The story of David takes place in the 11th century. It's an improbable rise to power. David goes from being a shepherd boy in the fields to becoming the king of Israel in a fairly short amount of time. And not only is he the king of Israel, but his reign, his kingship, is seen as the high point in Israel's history. But what we need to understand is that David lives at a very different time than us. He lives in an ancient world, and it's hard for us to wrap our heads around what the ancient world is like. But the other thing we need to know is David lived in a world of ancient warfare. If you think you can't understand what it'd be like to live in the ancient world, you have absolutely no idea what it's like to fight in ancient warfare. Um, most of us will never have to experience any sort of warfare, but for those of us who will, Chances are it will be from an airplane or from a helicopter or um, through a grainy screen. But in the ancient world, you did not kill someone with a grainy screen, but you killed someone that you saw over the top of your shield. Right before you were to drive your sword into them, you would look them in the eye. You would see the fear in their eye. You could smell them. You could smell if they'd had something to drink before they went to battle. It was a vicious time. But not only that, if you were to look over the top of the sword of the person in, or the, uh, the shield of the person in front of you and you were to see calm, that would shake you to your core. 
Because if the person on the other side was calm, that meant they were a veteran warrior. And your chances of getting out alive were almost zero. But then, then even if you did make it back to your camp, once you would get back, you would be so covered in blood and your adrenaline would be um, pumping at such high rates that you wouldn't even know whether you'd been wounded or not. And it would be hard to tell whether the blood on your body was your blood or the blood of someone you killed. And they didn't actually understand a lot about infections back then, but one of the things they knew was that if a part of their uniform were to get in their wound, um, the, it would, they would most likely lose a limb and probably their life because that the, they'd get in there and cause an infection and they would die. And if they were to die, their comrades would not be able to come and to save them, but the chances are that they would lie on a field and the birds of the air and the beasts of the field would come and finish them off. And if your brother to your right or to your left lost courage and turned and ran, if your comrade in battle were to lose courage, your chance of survival, the person on your left flank and your right flank, if they lost courage, you were going to die. And I hope this is the most uplifting introduction to a sermon you have ever heard in your life. So with that as a backdrop, um, turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Soko in Judah. Saul and the Israelites were Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites occupied the other with a valley in between them. So here you have these two opposing armies. They're staring at each other and there is a valley that separates them. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistines' camp. He was eight, or his height, his height, cubit, he was... His height was a cubits in a span. Sorry, I can't talk today, and I think I may have written that wrong. I also wish they'd just tell us what his height was and like numbers, I would understand. What they're trying to tell us, what the, the author of the scriptures is trying to tell us is that David is about nine and a half feet tall. I mean, uh, Goliath is about nine and a half feet tall. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod, which was about six feet long, and its iron-pointed weight or iron point weighed 600 shekels, about 15 pounds. So here is this imposing character. He is nine and a half feet tall. His spear is six feet, six feet long, and he has this massive killing instrument on the end. Most likely what would have happened in warfare is that Saul, or I mean that Goliath would have had a, a line of shields go in front of him into battle. And as the shields protected him, Goliath would have stood behind them with his spear, just spearing everyone in his path. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we'll be your subjects. Come on, game on. Do you have anyone that can match me? But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. 
On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul, who is the king of Israel, and all the Israelites were terrified and dismayed. Goliath came out day after day, and he is taunting Israel. He's like, do you have anyone? Just come on, just come fight me. Just one person, man on man. And in moments like this, people, Israel, would look to their king. Right? We are scared out of our mind. We don't know what to do. We need a king to save us. And what's interesting is King Saul is actually the first king of Israel, and he's only been king for a short period of time. And he was chosen to be their king because he was head and shoulders above everyone else. He was smarter than everyone else. He was taller than everyone else. He was better looking than everyone else. And he was a better warrior. They had placed all their hope in King Saul. But in this moment of dismay, Saul is nowhere to be found. He is at the back of the line, hiding out in his tent. See, they had placed their hope in their king, as everyone would have done. And by placing their hope in their king, they waited for the king to come out and to challenge Goliath. Now, one of the problems when we read ancient stories is we begin to ask, well, what does this have to do with me today in the 21st century? The last time I dealt with a giant who was nine and a half feet tall was, well, never. This, though, this moment right here actually is where our story intersects with this story. Because what's true for you is what's true of them. We place our hope in what we depend on. And when the person that we place our hope in disappoints us, we are left with anger and despair. This is why some of you resent your parents and why your childhood wounds are more um, complicated and last longer than any other wounding in your life because you had placed your trust in your parents and they let you down. Now, King Saul is missing from the story, and as each day passes, and as Goliath comes out and taunts them, King Saul's approval ratings are beginning to plummet. He is losing credibility, because they're like, Saul, you are only hope, and you are hiding out in a tent. Now, what's interesting, and I think it's important to understand, is that God never wanted Israel to have a king in the first place. Israel was always to be a unique nation. They were to be a theocracy. God was going to be their king, and then there would be a prophet who would speak on behalf of God. All the other nations had kings, but Israel was set apart as somebody different. Now, Israel had left Egypt about 400 years prior, and in Egypt, they had a pharaoh. In all the surrounding uh, countries in the 11th century, they had their own ruler. But Israel had, didn't have their own, and they began to want one. If we read um, just slightly before this story that we're reading today, in 1 Samuel chapter 8, beginning with verse 1. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. Samuel was the prophet. But his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, you are old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us such as all the other nations have. 
They come and they're like, hey, Samuel, we want to be like all the other nations. This is ridiculous. This is embarrassing. We go to fight our battles and we've got, we've got this envisionary, like an imaginary God that we claim protects us, but we would like maybe a, a guy who actually could protect us leading us into battle. But what Israel forgets, what Israel forgets is that that they had a unique vocation. They had a specific purpose. Their purpose was to put God on display for the world. The idea and the story is this, is that Israel would be so blessed that when people saw them be victorious in battle, even though it was against all odds, when they were asked, why were you so victorious? Their response could be, because the Lord God Almighty fights our battles. In fact, this had been their calling since the day that Abraham was in the desert underneath the stars. And God says, look up and count the stars in the skies sky and he said look I will give you your descendants will be more numerous than all the stars in the sky and you will be a great nation but you will not be a great nation for your own purpose but you will be a great nation so that all the people of the world can be blessed through you Israel was unique Israel had a special calling on its life Israel's role was to put God on display to the world but in this moment of challenge, this moment of crisis, they go to Samuel and like, we don't want to be special. Have you ever had that moment growing up and your parents are like trying to make you feel better and like, well, you're unique, you're special. And like, I don't want to be special. I want to be like everybody else. The story continues. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prays to the, prayed to the Lord and the Lord told them, listen, to all the people are saying to you, it's not you they have rejected. It's not you, Samuel, it's me. But they've rejected me as their king. Now listen to them. But warn them solemnly and let them know that the king who will reign over them will claim, uh, over them will claim as his, let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. So you can go read in this passage. Samuel's like, okay, you can have a king, but you need to know that if you have a king, your king is going to tax you. Your king is going to take the best land. Your king is going to take a share of your crops. Your king is going to draft your children to fight his battles for him. And in spite of all the warnings, the elders are like, yeah, maybe. But right now we feel like we're in a crisis and we just want to be like every else. We want a king. And this moment actually sets the stage for King David. But what we'll find is that David was different than all the other kings because David was reluctant and confident and humble all at the same time. We see the same attributes in the life of Jesus, right? Jesus has this incredible confidence about his purpose and his mission, but also there's a humility to his life. And David, all throughout his life, even in the dark moments, even in the moments, this is why I'm fascinated by the story of David, because the more you discover about his life, you're like, really? Like, you are a, a person we are to look up to? Scripture tells us that David is a man after God's own heart, but David has some really dark moments. But even in his darkest moments, David knew where his confidence lie, and there was a humility. And throughout his imperfect reign, he was never confused about the identity of Israel's true king. He was never confused about his limited role. And in spite of his popularity and his power, he always remembered who the true king was. 
But what's true for David is also true for us, that when we get a little bit of success, it is always um, easy to place our confidence in the success that we have achieved. Right, so you get that job, that dream job, and you finally feel like you have made it. My hard work has paid off, and I now have this position because of this job. Or maybe you get a little bit of money in your bank account. You now have a 401k. Some of you planners, you have six months of, of savings. Right? If you were to lose your job, you can live for six months. And in that, what happens is your trust begins to shift from God, and it begins to shift to your own success, your own power. And what ends up happening in that moment is you become the king of your life. God is no longer your king. And, what, and in spite of all of David's shortcomings, in spite of all of his failures, the one constant throughout his life is he kept coming back to this understanding that his success and his power was because of God. Picking up the story again. So here's this 15-year-old kid. And hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. I mean, when, when Goliath comes out, they are shaking in their boots. And as, as Goliath comes out, he is taunting them week after week after week. And then here comes this 15-year-old kid. And actually, David, who's the runt of the family, he's just the shepherd. His brothers are mighty warriors. David is sent to send a care package to the front line. I don't know what goes in a care package. Some kind bars, someone that was in the military came up afterwards and said unscented wet wipes, right? So those type of things, right? Some instant coffee. So David brings the care package to the front line and he arrives right at the moment that Goliath is coming out and taunting. Now everyone else, when they hear Goliath taunt them, they are terrified and they're dismayed. But David, when he arrives on the scene and he hears Goliath taunting, his response is he is offended. Who does Goliath think he is? Does he not know that we are God's people? We have God on our side. And David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes, listen to the way he phrases it, removes this disgrace from Israel? This is disgrace. We're God's people and here we are cowering because of some stupid giant He sees the situation differently than everybody else. Verse 26, David says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine, Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Right? Who, who does he think he is? There's an indignation in David's voice. And, and for him, like he believes that Goliath is outside God's covenant people. He's like, this is easy. We've got this. And David's like, okay, you know what? If nobody else will take him on, I'll take him on. And so the word goes to King Saul that there's finally someone that is willing to stand up to Goliath. And Saul's like, finally, you know, the shame will be removed. And then David walks in the room. He's 15 years old. Does anyone, I know it's been a long time. We live in D.C. There's not a lot of 15-year-olds. But you remember what a 15-year-old boy looks like, right? Like his biggest battle in his life is with acne. And so he walks in, and he is not a warrior. He's no soldier. There are no scars. There are no wounds. There's nothing to indicate he's ever been in battle. But instead, he's a shepherd boy. I mean, Saul's first reaction had to be, is this a joke? Are you kidding me? 
is this the time to be playing around? And he's like, get out of here. Just leave. And David says, wait, 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 wait. No, Saul, before you let me go, I understand I'm just a shepherd. I know I have no military experience. I get that. I don't even have a weapon. But one day while I was watching my father's sheep, a lion came and he tried to take one of the sheep. And instead of just letting the lion have the sheep, right, and say, well, dad, sorry, I lost one today. He's like, I didn't just hunker down, but I went after that lion. I killed him and I got the sheep back. And then he said, and then another day, not long after that, a bear did the exact same thing. And once again, I went after the bear and I got the sheep back. And then he says this. He said, your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised, right, this person who is outside God's people, right, this uncircumcised Philistine will be one of them. Why? Because he has defied the armies of the living God. And the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lions and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. For David, there's absolutely no confusion. There is perfect clarity. He sees this situation in a way that nobody else sees this situation. It will not be through his strength that they will conquer, but it'll be through God's strength. And this, is, this, this understanding is a thread that we see all throughout David's life. David believed that the man or woman whose hope was in the Lord need not fear, no matter how overwhelming the situation seemed. And he's like, look, King Saul, pick me, pick me. Let me do what no one else in your army is willing to do. And here's what I love about the life of David. Like, we have the narrative about David's life, but unlike almost anyone else in Scripture, we also have an insight into his mind, into his heart, because he left us with the Psalms, some of the most beautiful prayers that were ever written. And so, not only do we have an understanding of David's outward world, we also have a glimpse into his inward world. Listen to these words, Psalms 25. In you, Lord, I will put my trust, not in position or power, or bank accounts, or jobs, or political administrations. In you, Lord my God, I will put my trust. No one whose hope is in you will ever be put to shame. Guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are my God, or you are God my Savior, and my hope is in you all day long. This was the posture that God desired for all of Israel. This is the posture that God desires for us in, the, in circumstances that seem overwhelming, when we are facing odds that are against us. God is saying, put your hope in me. So back to the story. He's 15 years old, clear-eyed, confident. He makes his way down to the valley of Elah. And we can only imagine what happens on the other side. Like Goliath is heard that someone is coming out to do battle. And then David, this pimply 15-year-old kid with no weapons, with no armor, with absolutely nothing, makes his way down into the valley. And Goliath is like, what, you send me a boy? What are you thinking? Wait, why would you insult me this way? And then... David says to him, he says, look, you come at me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come at you in the name of the Lord of the hosts, the, the God of the armies of Israel whom you've defied. 
and I will strike you down and the birds of the air will feast on you and the whole earth will know that there is a God in Israel and this assembly will know that the Lord is not saved by sword or by javelin or spear for this battle is the Lord's and Goliath he will deliver you into my hands and then David kills him and David in this moment becomes the most popular person of all of Israel because he saved the day and he also becomes the most feared person in all of the Philistines or, the, or of, of the, to the Philistines and David had done what Saul could not do because he saw something that Saul could not see he saw that whose hope that those who hope in the Lord need not be afraid those who hope in the Lord they see clearly they act confidently and they walk humbly because they understand that their success is not through their own strength and every morning David declared these words and you Lord my God and you Lord my God I put my trust and my hope I put my trust my hope is in you all day long that's such a powerful message. Imagine if you were to wake up every morning. Imagine if you were to wake up tomorrow morning, and I don't know what it is you face. Maybe you have a daunting task at work. Maybe you've got a relationship that's crumbling. Maybe you have a giant in your life, something that seems insurmountable. What if you were to wake up tomorrow morning and just say, in you, Lord, I put my trust and my hope all day long. What if you were to take these words maybe and like tape them to the mirror in your bathroom so the first thing you see in the morning is in you Lord my God and you Lord my God I put my trust my hope is in you all day long. And in those moments when it looks like the world has turned against you and those moments when in fact when it seems that Goliath may in fact win you just remind yourself, you whisper to yourself, you whisper in, under your breath, and you, O oh Lord, I place my trust. My hope is in you all day long. And this is why David, in spite of his imperfections, this is why David's reign becomes the, 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 like the high point in Israel's history. Because as we're going to discover David was the greatest king in Israel's history because he never confused himself with the, the king. And David will be considered Israel's greatest kings not because he was perfect, but what made him the great king is he never confused himself with who, the king who gives him power. His hope, even as king, was in the Lord. And we're going to end there. We'll pick the story up next week. But this week, as you go into whatever challenge that you have to face, maybe there's, there's you, like in this moment, like you haven't even been able to concentrate on what I'm saying, partially because of my voice, partially because you're still thinking about ancient warfare, and partially because you're thinking about this giant that's in your life right now. And I don't know what it is you're, you're facing, but I just want you to pray those words over yourself. I want to pray those words over you. That in spite of whatever you're facing, our trust and our hope is in the Lord. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for these words of David. And I just want to pray these words of hope and these words of comfort over this room this morning. 
I thank you that the same God who created the universe, the same God who had David's back in that field so long ago is the same God who has our back. And so this morning, we just pray that in you, Lord, our God, we place our trust and our hope all day long. I pray, Father, that in those moments when our hope begins to fade and we begin to place our confidence and our trust in ourselves, I pray that you just remind us that our hope is in you.